Thank you, Dave. Good morning. Welcome to our first sermon uh, at the Parkway Church in the book of Jonah. My name is uh, Jeff. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Uh, so as we just read, we will be starting Jonah, and maybe you were hoping that we would name this sermon series something clever and or corny, like um, maybe the biggest fish story ever told, or Finding Nineveh, or A Whale's Tale, or something like that. Well, too bad. We're going to name it Jonah. That's what we do here. So my first sermon title is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through Three And uh, I'm excited to be starting this book, but at the same time, uh, many of us know that s uh, starting something new can uh, be somewhat challenging. So you might think back to your first day at a new school or the first few months with a new baby or starting a new job or something like that. When I was in seminary, my very first year at uh, Dallas Theological, I uh, worked at Starbucks and I was a barista. And uh, I got hired and immediately after getting hired, I I was put on the schedule. For some reason, the assistant manager had kind of overlooked the fact that all baristas should first go to kind of barista boot camp where you learn about Starbucks culture and you learn how to make the drinks and all of those kinds of things, which would have been really helpful for me because prior to starting at Starbucks, my coffee drink of choice was just coffee. I didn't, uh, I didn't know what a mocha was, or uh, I didn't know what a cappuccino was, or the difference between espresso or something like that. I certainly didn't know what a frappuccino was, or lattes, or anything like that. And so my first day on the job was an absolute mess. I'm thrown into one of the busiest stores in, uh, in the entire Metroplex, and uh, in my very first uh, day there on the job, my coworkers would uh, throw out this string of strange coffee-related Italian words, and I had no idea what they meant. And so I would just stare at them and, uh, and look at them uh, like I was super confused, and then I would say, I don't know what that is. And the first three, four, five times I did this, I'm sure my coworkers just thought, he's kind of slow. Uh, and, uh, and then they, they realized whether I'm slow or not, we need to get this guy off of the drink machine and we need to move him over to the register because at least I knew what money was. <laughs> now, uh, we had this one customer in particular who stood out. She came into the store every single day and uh, this is what she would order. I'm not making this up. Uh, she would order every single day. She would order a triple venti. Uh, triple venti, I, I wrote it down because I want to remember. Triple venti, half-calf, 160-degree soy, no-foam, sugar-free vanilla latte with seven Splendas added. And she would order two of those. One she would drink at the store with some friends, and then the other one she would take to go. Now, you don't have to know Starbucks culture. You don't have to know drink culture or different beverages or anything to know. That is an absolutely crazy drink, Right? Uh, if your drink order requires more than four syllables to pronounce, something is wrong. Uh, if your drink order can't fit entirely on a coffee sleeve, much less like a long sleeve of a shirt, something is, uh, is definitely wrong with you. If, uh, if your drink order uh, requires the barista to make it at a particular beverage, uh, temperature for you, and they have to open up the Splenda packets because you can't open them yourself, then something is wrong with you. If your drink order takes more than five minutes to make, then, uh, then something is wrong. This lady wanted three shots of espresso, but she really only wanted half the caffeine. Now, at least in, uh, in my particular store, we did not have the capacity to give you a uh, kind of half-calf shot. So what you do is you take a shot of regular espresso, 
you take a shot of decaffeinated espresso, and then you add both of those. That's two shots. That's now half-calf. But in order to get that third shot that she wanted, you'd have to take another shot of espresso uh, of caffeinated and then another shot of decaffeinated, and you'd have to pour off half each. And that's what, uh, what you would do. And then she would uh, want us to foam her milk at a particular temperature, but not real milk. She wanted soy milk. And then she didn't want any foam in it whatsoever. And then she would have us add seven Splendas, and she drank two of those uh, per day, which was just super, super strange. I'm sure she died of cancer or something like that, like within a couple of months. But years later... I actually found out that uh, this woman, whenever my wife was a kid, this woman was her dance instructor. So just one of those kind of small world things. Now, why do I tell you that story? The real answer is I don't know. I've I've been here for three years. I'm running out of personal anecdotes. Uh, So I'm just kind of, (laughs) I'm grasping for straws at this point. Uh, No pun intended. But really, this story is kind of just a reminder that sometimes starting something new can be a bit of a challenge. It, uh, you're kind of learning all these foreign things and uh, kind of foreign drink orders. You meet these incredible characters and uh, all of it, uh, all, all of like that. And so we have kind of lived at, and breathed as a church in the book of Romans for the past year and a half. Before that, uh, we spent a whole lot of time in the book of Ephesians. So we've become really accustomed to Paul. We've kind of started to think Paul's thoughts after him, the Apostle Paul, and, uh, and now we're moving into a new book, which is really different. I don't know if you know this, but uh, New Testament epistolary literature, that's what you call uh, the epistles of Paul, so epistolary is the adjective. Epistolary literature is really different from Old Testament prophetic narrative. These are very different, not to mention uh, that, but, but uh, also the different characters. We're going to meet some uh, new places. We're going to hear about these different things. At the same time, there is going to be a lot of similarity that we're going to see. That both uh, Romans that we've been in and Jonah have the same divine author, that these were authored by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they they are, are going to touch upon the same themes of the sovereignty of God and the love of God and the justice of God interposed with His judgment. And then ultimately, we're going to see a vision of the kingdom of God and His glory. So let's pray, and then we will dive into the book together. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we have this morning for us to gather together and to sit under Your Word I pray that you would prepare our hearts, even right now, that the people in this room might uh, be praying along with me, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. Help us, Lord, that we might grow, that we might learn repentance and faith, and that we might see the glory and, uh, and sovereignty of yourself in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, before we actually get into the text, uh, I want to give a little bit of an introduction. You know how when you first meet somebody, there are kind of these standard lists of questions that you might uh, ask uh, that person. You ask them, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Well, likewise, whenever it comes to biblical studies, uh, there are certain questions that we are to ask by way of introduction. So I want to do that with the book of Jonah, which is one of the 12 minor prophets. By the way, the language of major prophet versus minor prophet is not actually a biblical distinction. The Bible doesn't call them major prophets versus minor prophets. That's kind of a, a later theological designation uh, based on the fact that the minor prophetic books, 
uh, tend to be much shorter than what we call the major prophets of Ezekiel and Isaiah and uh, Daniel. That doesn't mean in any sense that Jonah is less inspired or less important or anything. It's just simply that, that pointing to the fact that it uh, tends to be shorter. But back to the introductory questions that we want to ask. There's four that I want to ask this morning, and then we will turn our attention to the text itself. I want to ask this question. Who wrote the book of Jonah? When was it written? What is it about? And then did it really happen? I think these are kind of the four uh, basic questions that we need to ask before we really turn our attention to the text. So I want to begin with who wrote it. And the short answer is we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. The main character, in some sense, is, uh, is Jonah, but we don't really know. The, uh, the text itself doesn't say if he wrote it or if someone else interviewed him and then kind of wrote down what, uh, what he talked about there. But we do know certain things about uh, Jonah, uh, certainly from this book in particular, and then also from a reference in uh, 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 14, Speaking of Jeroboam II, who was one of the many wicked kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, 2 Kings 14.25 says this, He, that's referring to the king Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath So we know his name, we know his father's name, we know his, uh, his hometown, and we know his occupation. And that's just about it. That's really the only information that we have uh, about Jonah, but that's really more than we need to know, and certainly all that we need to know because the book of Jonah is rather self-contained. In other words, all that we need to know about this character Jonah in order to really understand the book that bears his name, we find within these four chapters, especially because, as we will see, Jonah really isn't the main character Uh, of the book of uh, Jonah. God himself is actually the main character of the book of Jonah. And uh, Jonah is really just this plot device that helps us see the nature and character of Yahweh, the Lord God. So that's who wrote it. We don't really know who wrote it. When was it uh, written? Also, not a lot of clues about the date that it was written. Based on what we know from 2 Kings and the time that Jeroboam II ruled and reigned, we can locate this sometime as having taken place between around 850 B.C. to 750 B.C., but we really can't be any more precise than that. So it was written at least sometime after that period. So if we don't know who wrote it, we don't know when it was, when it was written, how do we even know that this should be part of our Bible? How do we know, even know that this is part of Scripture? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that, uh, among them being, first, that it was included in, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, so it was included in the Jewish canon of Scripture. If you were to ask a first century Jew, what is canonical, what is the Bible, they would have pointed to a list of books, including the book of Jonah. And secondly, not only that, but also the events of this book were referenced in the New Testament itself. If you were here on, uh, on Easter, we actually preached one of those texts from the New Testament, from the Gospels, where this story of Jonah is referenced, where Jesus himself actually quotes from uh, this, uh, this book and uh, references the story of Jonah. So we don't know who wrote it, we don't know when it was written, but we can be absolutely confident that it was inspired and therefore should be in our Bible sitting on our lap. So that's who wrote it. What is, uh, and when was it written, what is the book about? 
Well, if you've ever heard a, a sermon on Jonah before, raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon on Jonah before. Maybe half, a little more than half of the people in the room. If you've ever heard a sermon on Jonah before, maybe you heard something like uh, how this book is about kind of how to overcome the big fish in your own life or how to get out of that well. By the way, people make fun of me because I'm from Baytown, Texas, and I pronounce the word well and whale the exact same. So you're just going to have to deal with that as we go through, uh, through the text. Or maybe you've heard that this is about how if you don't do evangelism, God's going to get you. Or it's about the dangers of shirking your responsibilities as Jonah had uh, shirked his responsibilities. But this book isn't really ultimately about any of those things. And it's not about a fish. And it's not about the Ninevites. It's not even about Jonah. And it's certainly not about you. It's about Yahweh. It's about the Lord God. It's about the God who created not only Israel, but the entire world is about His divine love and justice and grace and mercy and goodness and sovereignty. So the application of the book isn't really for us to not be like Jonah. The application of the book is not really that we would be like the Ninevites who repent. The application of the book instead is that we might look upon, that we might gaze upon, that we might ponder at and wonder at the goodness and glory and mercy of God. Behold your God. That's ultimately the message of the book of Jonah. Lastly, I want to ask the question, did it really happen? If we had a library and you were going to take the book of Jonah and put it on a shelf in that library, would you put it on a fiction shelf or on a nonfiction shelf? Now, regardless of the way that you answer that, I think you could certainly appreciate the book and learn from it. You know, whether there was ever a boy who really cried wolf or whether there was ever really a tortoise who raced a hare, it's kind of irrelevant to the morals of those stories. Likewise, you could say that maybe Jonah was intended as a myth or a fable or an allegory and not as historical narrative. I don't think that your, uh, your understanding of Christianity as a whole or your uh, confidence in the authority of Scripture necessarily hinges on how you answer the question of whether or not uh, Jonah is historical narrative or is intended as an allegory or something like that. That said, I absolutely think that this is a historical account involving a real person and real places and real events, including even the really crazy parts about a big fish. Let me give you a few reasons why I think you should believe in this story as having actually taken place. The first one is because Christianity has generally always held to the fact that the Bible, the rest of the Bible, is historical in nature. So why would, all, why would we all, all of a sudden take this one particular book out of that sort of uh, genre of, uh, of understanding Scripture? Secondly, when Jesus references it, as we talked about, we preached about that on Easter, when Jesus references it, He seems to imply that it's a historical event. Third, it concerns a real prophet who's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. You think if someone was just uh, uh, making this up as an allegory or a fable or a myth or something like that to inspire uh, in us something, that they would have just made up a character and not used an actual historical character like uh, Jonah. Fourth, if it isn't true, it becomes hypothetical, which is hardly reassuring. Here is a story that shows that sometimes prophets are obe uh, disobedient and that God shows mercy even on his enemies. But if this didn't actually happen, if the events in this book aren't actually historical, then the story kind of loses some of its power, some of its efficacy. 
We just have hypothetical mercy, hypothetical grace, which isn't nearly as powerful for us. So I think that this should be interpreted as historical narrative. That's the way that we're going to take it as we work through the book. That said, there are two main uh, arguments against its historicity that uh, skeptics like to mention, so I want to mention those briefly. The first one being that certain elements in the book are uh, historically inaccurate. The second one being that the events in the book are just too sensational to be believable. So I want to briefly address each of those concerns regarding the idea that it's historically inaccurate. There are all kinds of claims that you could make, and so some people might say that the author is mistaken whenever we get to the chapter where it talks about the king of Nineveh. And they would say, see, that's historically inaccurate because Nineveh was a city and not a country, so there wouldn't have been a king of Nineveh. That's kind of like saying the queen of London or the president of Dallas. But obviously, that's easy enough to understand. Anyone who's king of Assyria, the nation, is therefore king of any city within that nation. Does that make sense? We see that uh, sort of phrasing elsewhere in, uh, in Scripture as well. For instance, in the Old Testament, you have uh, Ahab, who is the king of Israel, and in certain contexts is called the king of Samaria. He's called the king of this area within the larger nation of Israel. And uh, so in ancient literature, it was common to refer to a king either by the name of the empire in, uh, in general or by a particular city within that uh, empire. A second critique that some uh, might offer is that uh, Nineveh wasn't the capital city of Assyria at certain periods in history, and so they would say that uh, whenever uh, this book was allegedly taking place, that Nineveh wasn't the capital city of of Assyria or America, and uh, and so therefore it's uh, anachronistic. It's historically inaccurate to say that uh, Assyria was, uh, or Nineveh was the capital, but notice Whenever we get to this text, the text doesn't actually say that Nineveh was the capital. It just says it was a significant city, an important city, a large city. Maybe the king simply had a summer residence there, and that's why the king is in Nineveh. It doesn't necessarily mean that he lived there or whatever it uh, might be. Uh, Maybe he was just visiting. So even though these types of critiques come up, and at least on the surface they seem compelling, at the end of the day, if you just apply a little bit of critical thinking it will show that they really don't offer any substantial threat to the historicity of the book. Well, what about the sensationalism of it? This is really, I think, the heart of the critique. This is the heart of why skeptics want to leave this book out of, uh, of the Bible because it has this event of a man getting swallowed by a big fish, and that seems absolutely crazy. And here's what I think skeptics uh, miss whenever they mention this as a criticism of the book. They miss the fact that the craziness is the uh, exact point of this. Basically, the skeptic's argument is that we know that the miracle didn't happen because miracles didn't happen, which is a horrible argument and completely misses the point. The point of the book of Jonah isn't that we think that people generally get swallowed by big fishes and live to tell the tale. The point is that we know if you get swallowed by a fish, you don't live. And so therefore, when this one guy gets swallowed by a fish and lives to tell the tale, maybe we should listen to him. It's the same with the resurrection. The reason that we Christians believe in the resurrection is not because we're naive and we think sometimes people really, really die and they're dead for a few days and then they just get up from the dead. No, the point is when this one guy does it, We should listen. We should pay attention. This never happens. And so therefore, we should pay attention 
to it. That's the whole point of the miracle. So the idea that a man would get swallowed by a fish, that he would live in that fish for three days, then live to tell the tale is incredible, but it's not ultimately unbelievable unless we bring to the text a presupposition that says this cannot happen. But if we instead approach the text with humility, open to the possibility that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and rules and reigns over all things, then though it might be incredible, it is not ultimately unbelievable. And there's no reason to doubt the sensationalism of the story. Okay, with all of that introductory material behind us, let's turn our attention to the actual text that we'll be in over the next couple of months. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I'm reminded lots of books throughout history have really distinct, really kind of catching opening lines. For example, what book begins with Call Me Ishmael? Anybody? Moby Dick. Yeah, that's appropriate for uh, Jonah. What about It Was the Best of Times, It Was the Worst of Times? Tell the Two Cities. What about I Am Sam, Sam I Am? Green Eggs and, uh, and Ham. So this opening line to Jonah is really distinctive as well, although if you're just reading it on the surface, if you just kind of skim over it, it seems like it's just the same as all the other openings to the minor prophets. For example, look at Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Joel 1 1. The, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Micah 1 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Zephaniah 1 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. But there is something subtle yet distinct in Jonah's opening that you might not uh, actually see if you're just looking at it really quickly. He begins Now the word of the Lord that came to Jonah the son of Amittai. There is one word in particular in all of those other introductions, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, and on and on. You could go through the minor prophets. There's one word that's lacking in Jonah. I don't know if you caught it or not, but that word is a little conjunction, that. Those all say the word of the Lord that came to Joel, or the word of the Lord that came to Micah, or the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. In other words, the point of Joel and Micah and Hosea is to describe the word that came to the prophets. That's not the point of Jonah. The focus of Jonah isn't to give us this uh, uh, intense description of the prophetic word that goes to Jonah, but rather the response, the narrative, the story itself. So this is really unique among all the prophetic books for that reason. What is Jonah told to do? He's told to arise Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So let's work through that a little bit at a time. Let's begin with Nineveh. What is Nineveh? Well, if you were to locate it on a map today, it would be in modern-day Iraq. And, uh, and so uh, it was the, uh, a major city, at times the capital city, within the Assyrian Empire. And we as 21st century American residents might not be all that familiar with Nineveh, but you need to understand if you were a, an ancient Israelite reading this text, you would have been instantly provoked by the mere mention of the city of Nineveh. The entire book of Nahum, the prophetic book of Nahum, is written against Nineveh. The entire book of Nahum is about Nineveh. 
The prophets are filled with judgments against not only Nineveh as a city, but against the Assyrian uh, Empire in, uh, in general, who was known for its fierce terror, its historical cruelty. As an example, I'm going to read you something, and it's, uh, it's somewhat uh, grotesque. I'm not reading you this in, in order to just be gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous. But the point is, if you're going to understand how this would have hit you as a first century uh, or earlier Jew or early Christian, you need to understand the type of people that we are dealing with. You need to understand, the, 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 you need to be able to grasp kind of the feel, the weight uh, of this text to its original audience. So this is a quote from uh, a, a ninth century B.C. Assyrian king whose name was Ashur na Sipal II. Ashur na Sipar, Sir Paul II, a 9th century BC Assyrian king, he inscribed this uh, for history. He says, I built a pillar over his city gate, and I flayed, that is to strip the skin off, all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round about the pillar, and I cut the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to tree trunks round the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. There was more, but again, in order to not be gratuitous, I think you get the point here. This was not a family-friendly place. There's no real good modern equivalent. I tried to think of something. The closest I could come up with would be uh, not very modern. Um, it would be kind of us thinking back to kind of 1940s uh, Nazi Germany, if, especially if you are a Jew, or to think of kind of uh, 1840s antebellum uh, Confederate states if you're an African American, or to maybe think of uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge or, or, or something like that. But all of those are even maybe a little bit tame compared to the fierce historic uh, cruelty of uh, the people of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. So that's Nineveh. And it's called the great city. Not like good great. Not like Tony the Tiger. It's great or something like that. It's obviously not. It's wicked. It's evil. We'll see that. There's trouble brewing, so not great like good, but large and important. When it says that, uh, that Nineveh is a great city, it means large and significant and important. And Jonah is told to call out against it. In other words, to declare God's judgment, His wrath, His anger. Why? Because it says the evil of the city has come up before God, which kind of sounds like God is surprised. He had uh, learned something he didn't previously know, like uh, maybe he was minding his own business or he was taking a nap and suddenly was awakened by all the racket that Nineveh was making. And so he gets up to go and investigate. Now, this is not what this phrase means whenever it, uh, it says that their, uh, their wickedness or their evil has come up before me. It doesn't mean that. What does this phrase mean? Well, we should read this, uh, this phrase and this verse as an anthropomorphism. That's a big word uh, formed from the Greek words anthropos, which means man, and morphe, which means form or outward append, uh, appearance. So an anthropomorphism is whenever you describe God using human language, using human forms, using outward appearance 
of God. For example, when it talks about God having a mighty right hand, that doesn't mean he actually literally physically has a hand. He doesn't have fingers and blood vessels and fingernails and all of those kinds of things. When it describes God as having wings, we shouldn't think that he has feathers. Whenever it says that God sets his face towards something, that doesn't mean that he has a nose and that we should imagine him with uh, eyelashes and eyebrows and those sorts of, uh, of things. Those are all anthropomorphisms. And those are fairly, I think, easy for us to spot. But what we might not understand is the Bible would also speak anthropomorphically of God whenever it talks about his knowledge. When it says that God remembers something, that doesn't mean that he ever forgets anything. God doesn't forget anything. Uh, It's using human language. It's using human concepts in a way that kind of uh, lisps to us. It whispers to us in a way that we might understand. Or when it says that God is sorry or that God repents, we shouldn't uh, think that that means that He did something wrong. God never does anything wrong. By very definition, He doesn't do anything wrong. So He doesn't have anything to be sorry about or to repent of. So when we read that the evil of the Ninevites comes up before God, that doesn't mean that God has just now heard about it. He's just now heard about all the bad stuff that's happening, but rather it means that in His divine wisdom, He had previously chosen to overlook it, and now was the appropriate time for Him to act. So this is the word that comes to Jonah. Let's look at Jonah's response. Jonah 1.3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Most of us are already familiar with this story. Even if we didn't grow up going to church all that often, we're probably somewhat familiar with the story of, uh, of Jonah. So this isn't all that shocking, but imagine if you're reading this for the very first time. Imagine reading this for the very first time. This would have been a stunning reversal of expectations. This, we're on the third verse, and already you would have been shocked. If you're reading the Old Testament over and over and over again, you would read that the word of the Lord comes to a prophet. Over 100 times that phrase is used. And what happens each and every time? The word of the Lord comes to the prophet. The prophet gets up and the prophet speaks that word. The prophet obeys. This is the first and only example in the Old Testament whereby we see the word of the Lord coming to a prophet and the prophet simply says, I hear you, but I'm not going to do it. So not only would, have this been, would this have been strange in the context of the entire narrative of Scripture where the word of the Lord tends to produce this response But it would have been especially strange, especially out of place in the context of the book of Jonah. As we'll see over the next couple of months, in these four chapters, we'll see that the ocean obeys the Lord. We'll see that a storm obeys the Lord, that a great fish obeys the Lord, that a plant obeys the Lord, and the wind and a worm, even the wicked Ninevites In other words, the author goes out of his way to show that literally everyone and everything obeys the Lord, everyone except the prophet of the Lord, at least initially. So we see here a reversal of expectations, not unlike what we encounter as we're reading through the Gospels, uh, and, uh, and you see that the tax collectors and the Gentiles and the sinners are repenting, 
while the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are not. You see, the religious uh, elite were not obeying. The ones who we would expect to not obey actually end up obeying, and the ones that we would expect to not obey end up obeying. So we see that reversal here even in the book of Jonah. Jonah rises, but not to go to Nineveh as he was commanded. Instead, he seeks to go to Tarshish. Why? In order to flee from the presence of the Lord. The author mentions that twice in order to make it emphatic here in this verse. And note the irony. Note the irony of Jonah's attempt here to flee. It's kind of like Adam and Eve hiding behind some leaves. Jonah thinks he can somehow flee from the Lord, even though he's just received a prophetic word from the Lord concerning a nation that's hundreds of miles away. He thinks, maybe if I can just run far enough, God will leave me alone. God will not expect me to obey. I can somehow outrun the reaches of God's sovereignty and His omniscience. A buddy of mine the other day was over at my house trying to help me fix my Wi-Fi router. We moved it out of the nursery uh, and, uh, and moved it into the office. The problem with that is that the nursery is kind of in the middle of the house and, uh, and the office is uh, on, on the edge of the house. And so now there are places uh, in our bedroom where we don't get any Wi-Fi coverage. And so that means we can't um, uh, kind of check the monitor or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so there are parts of our house that get minimal Wi-Fi. I think it could be tempting for us, if we're not careful, to kind of think of God's sovereignty kind of like a big Wi-Fi. He's this big Wi-Fi router that's placed kind of in the middle of Jerusalem, and it's super powerful, but there are places, if we can just go far enough where we lose the signal, or if we just simply go far enough, maybe at least the signal gets weaker, but divine omniscience means that there is no place in all the world in which it is harder for God to act. He never has to contort His body. He never has to stand on His tiptoes or jump or get a ladder or something like that to see or to reach something or someone. So as we read Jonah running away, we see here the futility of sin. We see here the, uh, the ironic attempt to avoid a being who is utterly unavoidable because He is sovereign and omniscient, and omnipresent, and omnipotent. So Jonah is running away, and why is he running away? Maybe the first few times that you ever read this book or heard this preached, maybe you thought that this would be a sermon on fear. As we just talked about, the Assyrians were this fierce, historically, horrifically cruel people. I, honestly, I'd be afraid to march into Nineveh to tell them that some God they don't worship or care about is going to destroy them. I don't relish the idea of having my fingers cut off, having my skin stripped away from my body or my eyes gouged out. There might have been an element of fear in Jonah's response. Prophets weren't immune to this tendency toward anxiety or stress or fear. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is also one of the, the, my favorite paradoxes which is the, you have this account of the prophet Elijah, and he faces down this wicked king of Israel and 450 prophets of Baal. And he faces them down, and as he's facing them down, he is so cool and so calm and so collected, and he actually puts those 450 prophets to death, basically by himself. Anybody know what happens in the very next chapter? The queen says, I'm going to kill you. And what does he do? He runs in fear. 
So prophets certainly were not immune to fear, and we might think that's part of Jonah's response, and maybe that is part of his response, but we don't really have to speculate as to what his motivation was because the Bible is explicit. In chapter 4, verse uh, 2, we'll read this, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Obviously, we'll work through that uh, in a few weeks when we get to this passage. But for now, notice the main reason he runs away isn't that he's fearful of what the Assyrians might do to him. Rather, he's afraid of what God won't do to the Assyrians. He's afraid that God won't destroy them. He's afraid that God would show mercy and grace to them. And the last thing that he wants is for those dirty, wicked, cruel Assyrians to receive mercy and grace. So he runs out of pride, out of presumption, out of ethnocentrism, out of Jewish nationalism, out of racism. He takes off running as if to flee. And in this we see yet another irony. Here he is hoping that he can outrun the presence of the Lord. But by the end of the chapter, what's fascinating is he will find himself desperately hoping that God truly is omnipresent. The very omnipresence, the very omniscience that Jonah now despises, he will soon desire as he finds himself in the abyss of the sea and in the belly of the beast. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to our text for this morning. Jonah is fleeing to Tarshish, so he goes to Joppa, which is this city on the Mediterranean coast just outside the reach of ancient Israel. In other words, he kind of goes to a city where he thinks there's at least a chance for anonymity. There's a chance that he can kind of avoid the implication that he is a prophet of Yahweh who is running away. He's a prophet, which carries with it a certain degree of familiarity. So it's like he's kind of trying to avoid prophetic paparazzi or something like that. And so he flees to Joppa, this non-Israelite city, in order to avoid Yahweh and Yahweh's presence. Again, as if God's signal is somehow stronger just within the contours and confines of the nation of Israel. So he runs to Joppa. Now, interestingly enough, the city of Joppa has some degree of prominence in the New Testament. If you were reading in the book of Acts in chapter 10, you'll see that Peter is actually staying at Joppa for a period of time. That's where he has this really important vision of this uh, sheet carrying unclean animals. And God says, no longer call unclean what I have made clean. And immediately thereafter, a man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, shows up at his house and asks Peter to go to Caesarea and preach the gospel to him and his household to a bunch of Gentiles. So you can see this interesting contrast between this Old Testament reference to Joppa and the New Testament reference to Joppa. In Jonah, a prophet is going to go to Joppa in order to avoid preaching to the Gentiles. Whereas in the book of Acts, an apostle is going to go from Joppa. Why? In order to do the very thing that Jonah was trying to avoid in order to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. So Jonah's in Joppa, and he just so happens to find a ship to Tarshish, 
which must have seemed like great luck. Ancient ports were not like DFW or Love Field. There weren't like ships that were leaving kind of on the, the hour or the half hour. Uh, a typical Mediterranean trip might take a few months to complete. So if you're looking to go to a particular city, you might get to that port and you might have to wait for weeks or even months before there's another ship that's leaving for that particular area. But he just so happens to find one that's going the very place that he wants to go. I'm sure he thinks this is sort of, sort of a lucky fluke for him. But in a book where God controls the wind and the waves and the worms and the fish and so forth, it isn't hard to see that there is divine providence even behind what seems to be this lucky coincidence. Now, we don't know all that much about Tarshish. There are a few places with that name in Scripture, so scholars aren't really sure here in the book of Jonah which one it's referring to. Some think that it's in Greece. Some think that it's in Italy. Others think that it's in Spain. We don't know, and identifying it precisely really isn't essential to understanding what the text means, what you need to know. Whatever it, uh, what you need to know is wherever it was, wherever Tarshish was, it wasn't Nineveh. That's the point. In fact, it was the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh is hundreds of miles to the east, whereas he's heading west. So Jonah gets on a ship. Or he gets to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He pays the fare. He gets on board, and he goes down below. And we'll pick up the narrative next week. But first, I want to mention two things that emerge from our text today that we'll kind of see throughout the book. And so even now that we'll prepare our hearts for that, the first is God's concern for the nations. Most of the Old Testament is about God's dealings with Israel. But here is a book right in the middle of the Old Testament prophetic literature demonstrating God's concern for a foreign people. To many Israelites... The idea that God would be concerned for a foreign people would have been a foreign idea, although it shouldn't have been. We've talked about this a number of times here at Parkway. Bear in mind, the original call and creation of Israel, the promise to Abram, involved a promise for the entire world. Look at Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is when God first reveals himself to Abraham. From the very beginning of the creation of Israel, there is this hope for the entire world. And look at how many times that promise is repeated just within the book of Genesis, Genesis 18, 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 22, 18, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 26, 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 28, 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God's concern for the nations, His concern for the world, His concern for every family of the world, all the different families of the earth, every ethnicity, every race. It isn't whispered, it's shouted throughout the Old Testament such that the only way that we don't hear it is if we put our fingers in our ears and we yell. Israel as a whole heard this promise of an offspring and they simply stopped listening to the rest, which contained this promise concerning the nations 
and the families of the earth. As we've said many times before, the Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the creation of the world, not in Genesis 12 with the creation of Israel. So God's desire is for His glory to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, which means that people of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation will worship together under the banner of the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing to note, that God's control over and concern for the nations, even the wicked people of cruel Assyria. But even more than that, I want us to take note this morning of the nature and character of God. As Jonah will say in chapter 4, we just read it a minute ago, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's the point of the book of Jonah. Throughout this little book, we'll see God's justice. We'll see His providence. We'll see His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. We'll see His love and grace and mercy. As we talked about before, this book isn't really about Jonah or a fish or the Ninevites or you. It's about an utterly sovereign king. It's not about what we do. It's about what, uh, what and who He is. Behold, your God. That's the message of the book of Jonah. And so we see little hints as we go along through this book. We'll see little hints of the gospel of the kingdom in which a king exercises authority over and mercy toward his enemies. And so we find ourselves as little characters in that larger story that apart from grace, we're like Nineveh, that we're wicked and evil and rebellious. And apart from grace, we are like Jonah. We're self-righteous. We're arrogant, obstinate, and angry. And yet Christ comes to us and He beckons us to life and joy. So let's hope collectively, let's hope as a body, let's hope as a congregation, as a church, that as we work through these four chapters over the next two months, that we would be prompted to repentance, that we would be prompted to overwhelming joy that God doesn't destroy us, And that He doesn't merely tolerate us, but that He loves us. He gives us life and hope and adoption as sons and daughters. That God's concern for the nations would overflow the borders of Israel and find us here even in McKinney. Let's pray as the men come forward for communion. Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity we have this morning to look into Your Word and uh, to have it hopefully over the next couple of months pierce our hearts, Lord, to draw us to faith and, uh, and repentance. I pray that You would minister to us individually. I know that there are people who come in with, uh, with hurt, people who come in discouraged or depressed. I know there are people who come in with a degree of skepticism about this whole story about a man being swallowed by a fish. And so I pray that You would just meet us where we are this morning and over the next uh, few months as we're together in this book. So I'm grateful for the book of Jonah, the opportunity we have uh, to learn for it. Would You bless us this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.